With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Wednesday, November the 10th, brought to you by epilindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location and access whatever it is you're geo-blocked from. So as an English expat living abroad, you will be able to access BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, Sky Go, all four whatever it is you want to get to, as an Irish expat, RT player, Virgin Media, as an American expat, Hulu, HBO, Peacock, all your sports, libertyshield.com, use the code EPLPOD, E-P-L-P-O-D, to get 50% off at checkout. You can download the software directly onto your devices from the site straight away and get using it. The number one ranked VPN provider on Trustpilot, five-star score on Trustpilot, libertyshield.com, folks. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And lastly, do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Right, folks, busy day. Five clubs to get through for their season so far review. Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Everton, Leeds and Leicester. But first, there's news. There is mental news coming out of Paris Saint-Germain where Aminata Diallo, who's a player for PSG's women's team, is currently in police custody on allegations of attempting to assault her teammate, Kira Hamroui, to eliminate her from competition for the same position. So they vie for the same spot in the team. And Diallo hired two masked men to physically attack Hamroui in a bid to injure her so she could take her position in the team. Lekip say the two masked men dragged her out of her car before punching and hitting her in the legs in an attempt to hurt her. An iron bar was used repeatedly to attack her legs during the shocking ordeal which occurred last Thursday. PSG have released a statement on the incident. It is absolutely bananas. And what it reminds me of, of course, is the Tonya Harding 
Nancy Kerrigan incident back in 1994. For those that don't know that story, you can look it up on Wikipedia. It's under the 1994 Kobo Arena attack. Basically, Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan were both competing for a spot on the uh, US Winter Olympic team. Kerrigan was the favourite to get the spot. Harding hired people to attack Kerrigan with a telescopic baton. I think it was Harding and her husband. Um, Absolute madness. Absolute insanity. There's actually a great film called I, Tonya. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching it. It's Margot Robbie plays Tonya Harding. It is a, a brilliant, brilliant film. But the event itself is madness. And I recommend going and reading up on it. And it it will just give you the same vibe as what's happening here. Never have women compete for something. Because lunacy is what what will prevail. This is absolutely crazy. And you'd have to imagine that Aminata Diallo's career is pretty much over now. Like, I can't imagine PSG won't release her. She may well go to prison for this. And what club is going to sign her? She's part of the women's national team. But what club would want to sign her after this? That is, it's just insanity. Imagine, for example... Marcus Rashford getting attacked by a group of lunatics and it turned out that it was Jaden Sancho who'd paid them off because he wanted to get a spot in the United team. Like, just imagine, that's basically what this is. Um, so she'd been loaned to Atletico Madrid in January of this year because she was struggling to get in the PSG team. Like, she's 26, she's not a child, and she's at this type of behaviour. And she'd lost her place in the national team by the looks of things. Just ask for a transfer. Simple as that. Just ask for a transfer. Madness. Absolute madness. Uh, Stephen Gerrard looks like he is set to be appointed as the new manager of Aston Villa. So. Ashley Priest, who is the Villa correspondent for Birmingham Live, said that it is all but done. He is finalising his backroom staff. I assume Gary McAllister and Michael Beale will join him from Rangers. Uh, an, an announcement to be expected in the next 24 to 48 hours. Christian Perlow set to, Perslow set to get his man. So Perslow seems to be the one who's uh, who's driven this. Now, I think Villa could do better, but they could absolutely do better than Christian Perslow to run their club. This is a guy who nearly ran Liverpool into the ground and um, you know, strutting around in his Cuban heels. It's the best move Gerard was going to get. You can look up and down the league. There was no bigger club going to give him an, an opportunity. The only one from a playing perspective that might have been a better fit would have been Leicester if Rodgers was to move on. but. 
there is the possibility that Le- that Leicester team gets broken up if Ndidi and Thielmans and those decide they want to move on and go play Champions League football. And then you're looking at a big rebuild. And again, is that's not a better job than Aston Villa. With Villa, you inherit a club where there's big expectations, no question. There's incredible history at the club. Villa are one of the great English football sites. And it should never be forgotten that their history is outstanding. They've got seven league titles to their name, seven FA Cups, five league cups, and a European Cup. Now, admittedly, it's a long time since most of that took place. They haven't won the league in it's 40 years, 41 years this year. It's 40 years this this season since they won the Champions League. They haven't won the FA Cup since 57. They did win the League Cup in 94 and again in 96. But it's been a long time. But there is great history there. Villa are a sleeping giant. They've got highly ambitious owners, plenty of money behind them. You'd have to feel as if there will be demands placed on Gerrard. Now, like I say, I think they could do better. I I think they've put a little bit too much faith in Perslow. And Perslow's gone for a big name because Dean Smith was a very popular manager with Villa fans when he was appointed and while things were going well. Dean Smith was a, a boyhood Villa fan. They were the club he'd always dreamed of managing. And obviously it's just, it's, Difficult to break that bond. So they've gone for the big name. But for those of you of an NBA persuasion, it reminds me of when Wes Edens bought the Milwaukee Bucks back in 2014. And he put a little bit too much faith in some of the existing decision makers that were there. Who appointed Jason Kidd, who'd been a legendary player. He's a Hall of Fame player. In the NBA, one of the greatest point guards of all time. But he only had one season as a coach with the Brooklyn Nets. It had gone pretty well, but not great. But he was a huge name. There were better coaches out there, but they went for the big name. It didn't work. And it wasn't until they fired Jason Kidd that they managed to become a top-end team. And the hope will be that Gerard works better than Jason Kidd, but there are big question marks over his move to the Premier League. How does he cope when he doesn't have a huge financial advantage? How does he cope when he doesn't just have the best players? Can he overcome a bad run? We don't know. It's a big task for Gerard. Very, very big task. A big step up. The positive would be it looks like he's bringing McAllister and in particular Michael Beale with him. And Michael Beale is absolutely vital from a tactical point of view. There will, of course, be, you know, be talk that this is a stepping stone to Liverpool. I hope not. I hope he is there five, six, seven years and we get to see him build them into potentially a top six, top five club. They have the the, the potential as a club to force their way into that big six mix. 
um, to become a big seven. I know we we all think Newcastle will get there, but that's further down the road for them. Villa have the size, the history, the fan base. They've got wealthy owners, owners that are richer than those who own Liverpool, United, I think Arsenal as well, and Spurs. So they can get there if they do this right. There's no reason Villa can't be Spurs, but more successful. They've got more history than Spurs. They're traditionally a bigger club than Spurs. Spurs have the London thing, and Spurs have become a huge club in recent years, but they weren't always. So Gerard taking this job is is crucial to Villa, that, that it works. They can't really afford for it not to work. He can't afford for it to be a disaster either. If he flops at Villa, he will never get the Liverpool job. If he is spectacularly bad, he it just won't happen for him. Now, Stan Collymore assures us that he won't be bad because he's never been bad, except that, well, he's only had three years in management, Stan, and what he did as a player is basically irrelevant because Frank Lampard was a great player and he showed he was a fairly bad manager at Chelsea. Um, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer wasn't a great player, was a good player and he's a bad manager. There's been plenty of great players who... Roy Keane was a great player. Didn't go so well as a manager, certainly at Ipswich. So, Gerrard is under a lot of pressure. and He's going to be under pressure from day one. There's a good squad there. Doesn't need a whole lot. He plays the 4-3-3 at Rangers. If he sticks with that, I'll be curious to see what he does up front. Perhaps he goes Watkins and Bailey either side of Ings. Watkins may have to be talked into that a little bit, but I think that's pro- probably what he will try. Uh, Matty Cash, I think, should be excited about this because we've all seen what Gerrard does with his fullbacks. They will need a left-back. For, the, for this style of football, they need to buy a left-back. Um, he obviously has a need at centre-back. Next to Konza, they need a centre-back, but they get a really good goalkeeper in Emmy Martinez, a really good holding midfielder in Douglas Louise. John McGinn is much more suited to a midfield three than the midfield two nonsense we've seen this year. He probably needs one in midfield unless he's going to try and use Buendia there, but he will have to get Emmy Buendia working a lot harder off the ball. He is capable of it. He hasn't shown it at Villa yet, though. But if Buendia works, it's only a left-back and a left-side centre-back to get things moving. Then as he progresses, he will tweak and tinker and upgrade and whatever else. But there's there's an opportunity here for Gerard, and there's a, an amazing academy there. You know, you look at, at Chukwemeka, you look at the, the Ramsey brothers, huge talents. Louis Barry, huge talent. There's a real opportunity for Gerard to have good success at Villa to do things the right way. And with a bit of luck, he will. And with a bit of luck, he'll stay there for, you know, five, six years and really build something and leave a lasting impression and bring success and bring silverware to a fan base that deserve it. 
I think Villa could have done better, but this is what they're doing, and they will live and die by the decision. West Ham United have announced that the Czech investment group 1890s Holdings has completed the acquisition of 27% of WH Holding Limited. As part of the agreement, it is intended that 1890s Holdings chairman Daniel Kretazinski and his colleague Pavel Horsky will become members of the board of directors of WH Holding Limited. A successful global investor, businessman and lawyer, Mr. Kretazinski's investment follows diligent negotiations with the shareholders, including West Ham's joint chairman, David Sullivan and David Gold. The agreement is a further improvement to the club's capital structure, which will initially enable the reduction of its long-term debt and the ability to continue to direct funds generated into other key areas of focus, continuing the positive progress made at West Ham in recent years. Commenting on the investment, Kretzinski said, I am delighted this detailed process has now been successfully concluded. I am passionate about football. I feel great. I sorry. I greatly appreciate and respect the exceptional history and tradition of West Ham United, as well as its loyal and passionate supporter base, and also the highly inspiring role it plays in many social programs and initiatives. The development and growth of the club in recent years has been clear for everyone to see, and I'm delighted to be part of what I believe is a very exciting future ahead. Having been to the London Stadium recently, he was there at the weekend to watch West Ham over Liverpool. Um, to watch David Moyes' team, I know it is an incredible time to become part of the West Ham United family. I feel privileged to now have the opportunity to help everyone here build on the proud traditions of this great club. Karen Brady said on behalf of the board, I'm very pleased to welcome Daniel Kredzinski, Pavel Horsky and 18-19 Holdings to West Ham United. We are always looking to continue to progress and Daniel's involvement brings investment, which strengthens the club's position and in turn will assist in the development of the club's key areas of focus. David Sullivan and David Gold have always been very open about finding the right investors to join them on the journey as custodians of West Ham United and Daniel's strong business acumen and football experience will be of huge benefit to the club we very much look forward to working with him and Pavel. This is huge news for West Ham, great news for the club, and great news for a fan base that in large part are sick and tired of the existing ownership. Now, there has been rumours during these negotiations that there is a close where he will be able to buy out Golden Sullivan and take a majority ownership share. He is also the owner of AC Sparta Prague. He's a 40% shareholder there, and he's the chairman of the club. So he does have, you know, 17 years in football. Uh, I will say that under his watch, Sparta Prague have had some good seasons, some bad seasons, but, you know, he's overseen quite a bit of success. Uh, four league titles. Now, none since 2014. But I do wonder if he might use those links because there's a couple of players at Sparta Prague 
Adam Karabic, the young midfielder, and Adam Hlozik, the young attacker, who are hugely rated and could well find their way to West Ham. We've seen, obviously, in recent years, the arrival at West Ham of Thomas Suchek, of Vladimir Sufal, and Alex Kral. And you would wonder if we will continue to see West Ham tap into that Czech talent base. Those two, in particular, are worth just keeping an eye out for their names coming up. Those are two special talents. You'd also have to look at other Czech players. Maybe Patrick Schick is a player they could be interested in as an alternative-slash-successor to Mikel Antonio. David Zima, the young defender currently with Torino. He was with Slavia Prague as part of their impressive run in the um, in the Europa League. But exciting times for West Ham. This is the best West Ham team I can remember. Many people say that the team in the 80s um, was, you know, the last time they were this good. Uh, but I'm too young to remember that team. So, um, yeah, look, it's great. It is great. And maybe, maybe this moves them a, cl- a step closer to the fans being able to wave goodbye to Gold, Sullivan and Brady, who aren't the most popular among the fan base. But look, if they can continue to deliver a good on-field product, then perhaps there is a way to mend those fences. But I wouldn't put too much, um, wouldn't put too much stock in in Gold, Sullivan, and Brady. To be totally honest, uh, let's let's move on. Let's jump straight into reviewing Chelsea thus far. Obviously, they are top of the Premier League. Uh, played eleven, won eight, drawn two, and lost one. They beat Crystal Palace. They beat Arsenal. They drew away with Liverpool, having played the entire second half with ten men. They beat Villa comfortably, beat Spurs comfortably. They lost to City at home. They beat Southampton, they beat Brentford, they hammered Norwich, they beat Newcastle, and they drew with Burnley at home. That Burnley result is a bad one. The City result's not a bad one because they're defending league champions. What was bad about that game was how negative Chelsea were, how cautious they were in their approach. The lack of ambition to go and win that game. And that is something that has been leveled at Thomas Tuchel since he took over. Tuchel arrived at a reputation as playing great attacking football. He'd done it at Dortmund. He'd done it at PSG. And he'd often had those teams play in a manner in which they were very, very open defensively. But he arrived at Chelsea and he went completely the opposite direction. They're outstanding defensively. They've only conceded four goals in their 11 games thus far. They are on track to break the all-time record. Now, whether they can manage it across the full season or not, I don't know. But it's certainly not a fluke when you look at how good they were defensively when he took over last season. They'd obviously be delighted to be top of the league, and they should be. Um, they're... Defensive side is is incredible, and it is a system thing. Tuchel has mastered 
how to set this team up in the Premier League. He's getting good goal return from his wingbacks. We've seen Chilwell and Rhys James be match winners. Chilwell has three goals this season. James has four. Made all the more impressive by the fact that neither have started every game. Um, James is their top scorer in the league. They've got Lukaku, Chilwell and Mount all have three. Now, Mounts all came in the one game. Kai Havertz has two. Trevo Chalaba has two. Jorginho, Timo Werner, Rudiger, Alonso, Thiago Silva, Kante, Kovacic, Pulisic, Hudson-Odoi and an own goals. They're getting goals from everywhere. They've scored 27 goals in the league. It's the second most in the league after Liverpool. The issue is they're not... They do look at times like they're very stodgy going forward. Like against Liverpool, there was no real ambition to win the game once the sending off happened. Against City, there was no ambition at all. They looked really stodgy against Brentford. They looked stodgy against Burnley. When it clicks for them, they can destroy teams. But there are times when it's a little bit simplistic. Now, they still have Lukaku to come back. He's been injured the last couple of games. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is the finished product for them. I think there's probably a lot more to come from this Chelsea team. I think Tuchel's done a great job of rotating his squad, using different players here and there. He's getting a rejuvenated Ruben Loftus-Cheek as a contributor this year. He's getting contributions from Mason Mount. Hudson-Odoi is playing better. Zayic looks better than he did last season. Havertz looks the most comfortable he has at any point in his Chelsea career. Marcus Alonso's been largely very good since Tuchel took over. And I think we've seen uh, Christensen and Rudiger in particular really excel in that back three. I said at the start of the season, I thought Chelsea were the favourites to win the title. I thought Lukaku was going to have a bigger impact. I still think he will. And I think that spells trouble for the rest of the league. I really do think that spells trouble for the rest of the league. Now, they've got a difficult enough run coming up. Leicester away next, then United. Uh, Watford away, then West Ham. So, you know, there'll be tr- some tricky games. But if they can get through this next run with, say, three wins out of four, then it's Leeds, Everton, Wolves and Villa before the end of the year. You would fancy them to win each of those games. It's going to be very, very difficult to stop them this season. They don't look like they've got many flaws. Like, oftentimes you can watch a team play and you'll spot a weakness in the defence. You'll see something that they don't do or something that a particular player does that can be exposed. You don't really see that with Chelsea. Now, they have relied on Mendy at times this season, the Brentford game obviously being the, the most notable one. They've, they have relied on Mendy. But the fact that they have Mendy there, who, despite some flaws, is a really good shot stopper, it does give them that safety blanket. None of the defenders are individually great defenders. Reese James has big flaws in his game defensively, as does Ben Chilwell. As does Christensen. As does Rudiger. Thiago Silva was great 
six years ago. He hasn't been particularly fantastic for the last three years. But he still reads the game really well. He still organises really well. Now, he's got no pace. And when teams get really physical with him, he can look a little bit rattled just because he's never experienced it prior to joining Chelsea. We saw West Brom destroy him last season. Um, there's been occasion this year where he's looked a little bit rattled. When, when he has time or when the opposition aren't playing at a hectic tempo, then he looks like still the, the player he was. Now, Tuchel's very clever with him and leaves him out for the games where he thinks that some of his flaws could get exposed and plays Christensen in that central role. And I think Christensen is better in the central role than he is on the right. But obviously, they, they want Silva there for leadership for organisation. He's getting the best out of his midfielders. The only one who he's not getting the best out of yet is Saul. And, you know, anyone that's watched Saul regularly over the years knows that he's an elite-level midfield player who will come good if given the opportunity. Thus far, he's played 47 Premier League minutes. So it's very hard to judge him based on that. He hasn't really played in other competitions either. He's played four times in total. Uh, he was really good in the League Cup. A little bit shaky in the Champions League appearance. But in terms of minutes on the pitch, he's probably had as many good minutes as bad minutes. He's the only one thus far from the squad that you would say can do more this season. Obviously, Pulisic, he hasn't played. Werner, Werner's just a big question mark, to be totally honest. There's, there's a lot to like about his game, but obviously his finishing has been so erratic since he joined. He seems to live offside. If Tuchel can figure out the Werner-Lukaku front pair, then they're going to be a major issue for everybody. They already are, and I still maintain that they're the favourites to win the title this year. But they need to avoid repeats of the City game. Now, maybe Tuchel's approach is if, you know, there's only two teams to worry about here, Liverpool and City. If I can avoid defeat in those four games... We'll beat everybody else. And maybe that's what he's looking at. And look, he might not be far wrong. He might not be far wrong. I know they, they drew with Burnley, but everybody else other than Liverpool and City, they've handled bar Brentford. To be fair, Brentford gave them a real game and should have beaten them. But look up and down the results and then go look at the performances. They beat Crystal Palace very easily. It was men against boys against Arsenal. They dominated Villa. Dom they, Villa were okay for the first half. Second half, Chelsea just wiped the floor with them. They dominated Tottenham. They were vastly superior to Southampton. Walloped Norwich, walloped Newcastle. You should wallop Norwich and Newcastle, to be fair. But at the same time, they went out and did it. No one else has put seven past Norwich this season. And both Liverpool and City have both played them. So there's a lot to like about this Chelsea team. The style of football won't be for everybody. And there's some interesting nicknames going around about Thomas Tuchel. Um, Tuchelban, I think, is the is the best of them. But, yeah, I mean, 
they're they're a really good team. They're, there's depth everywhere. There's no real weakness. The individual issues that they have defensively are covered by the system, and how quickly they rotate through positions and how they defend in bunches. So, look, credit to them. Credit to Thomas Tuchel. What a, what a turnaround! It's not even in the job a year. They're a completely unrecognisable team from the mess they were under Frank Lampard. We'll move on to Crystal Palace, the surprise package of the season thus far. They're one of the most entertaining teams to watch. I genuinely never thought, especially you know within the last couple of years, that I would enjoy sitting down on a Saturday to watch Crystal Palace against Wolves. But I really enjoyed watching it. Wolves are much more entertaining under Bruno Lag, but this Crystal Palace is unlike any Crystal Palace that we've seen in recent years. Myself and Guy went over the uh, the Crystal Palace managers before, but they've had some really, really horrible football played under a succession of gammon and gravy managers. Neil Warnock, Paul Hart, Ian Holloway doesn't play great football, Tony Pulis, Neil Warnock again, Alan Pardew, Sam Allardyce, and obviously then four years of the one and only Hodge. That's a lot of ugly football dating back 14 years. We could go back further, but why would you? Why would you relive those things? Vieira has them playing a front-footed, aggressive style. They're good in the press. They counterattack well. They defend smartly. Their summer signings thus far looking like great business. Odson Edwards made an impact, scored some goals. Yoki Manderson's been outstanding. Mark Wehi next to him should be in the England squad. Now, Will Hughes hasn't played uh, as yet, but I think he's still coping with some injuries. He'll be a good addition to the midfield group. Michael Elise hasn't established himself as a starter, but coming off the bench, he's been really effective. And Conor Gallagher's been outstanding. Absolutely tremendous. And if they do nothing else next summer, they should ensure they can keep him. Find a way to do a deal with Chelsea to keep him. Because he is really, really important to how they're playing. And he's really developing. He's, he's really fun to watch in this team. And I don't know that he has much of a career with, with Chelsea. I don't know that they have a real path for him. They've a lot of bodies in midfield already. You know, the worry with Palace this year was, you know, they lost Gary Cahill, they lost Scott Dan, uh, Stephen Henderson, Wayne Hennessy, James McCarthy, Mamadou Sacco, Andros Townsend, Patrick Van Aanhold, Conor Wickham. Not that these are good players or great players or anything like that, but just that experience, that knowledge of how to survive in the Premier League. But this isn't a team set out to survive in the Premier League. This is a team setting out to win games. They began the season, obviously, with that defeat to, to Chelsea. They looked a little bit naive on the day, but these players were still finding their feet. They drew nil-nil with Brentford. It was a good result considering Brentford had beaten Arsenal in the first game. They came from behind twice to draw with West Ham. And that was kind of the first sign that we might have something here. Then they hammered Tottenham 3-0. 
really impressive display. Now, Spurs were a mess, but Spurs had also won their first three games until they ran into, into Palace. They lost 3-0 at Anfield, but the scoreline doesn't really reflect the game. They had a couple of good chances in that game. Eduard should have scored, and Benteke had a good chance with a header. They did cause Liverpool some problems. Liverpool were the better team on the day, there's no doubt about that. And I would say a scoreline of 4-2 would have been a fairer reflection of the game. They got a draw with Brighton, where they comfortably outplayed Brighton. And Brighton got a 96-minute winner. Or a 96-minute equaliser, rather, to take a point. Against Leicester, they went two behind and showed outstanding team spirit to come back, or as Brendan would call it, character, to come back and get a draw. They got a 2-2 draw at Arsenal. They should have won that game. They went behind again to an early goal, fought their way back, got in front, 95th-minute Lacazette goal to, to draw it. That's the only real knock on them, is that the Brighton game and the Arsenal game, games they should have won, they gave up really late goals. Maybe that focus just isn't quite there until the final whistle. But that's four more points they should have. The 1-1 draw with Newcastle was disappointing. You shouldn't be drawing with Newcastle. They're awful. But then they went and they beat City 2-0 at the Etihad. And deserved to beat City 2-0 at the Etihad. And in the weekend, they beat Wolves 2-0. So they sit 10th on 15 points. That's pretty good. It's pretty impressive. If it hadn't been for those late, those late goals against Brighton and Arsenal, they'd be 6th on 19 points. And to be fair, I actually think that would be a fair reflection of what they've done this season. I've really enjoyed watching them. They've only lost two games. That's the same as Brighton. The same as West Ham, the same as City. Only Liverpool and Chelsea have lost less games than Crystal Palace. Now, they do have six draws, and that's the most in the division. And just the three wins so far, that's the, the least in the top half, the least in the top 12. But they're hard to beat. Defensively, they're improving game on game. Still think there's a weakness at right back. Joel Ward, for me, just would be the weak link in that defence. But, to his credit, I do think he's bringing an element of, of leadership and experience to that defence. Now, Anderson is the vocal leader of that line. He's the organiser. Gwehi is the, the pace. He's the uh, athleticism, the agility. I like what I'm seeing from Tyreek Mitchell at left back. I think he's going to be a very steady left back for quite a while in the Premier League. But I think a right back, and eventually you're going to have to upgrade on the keeper. Um, Guide is still a good goalkeeper, but he's quite a rudimentary keeper, and he's he is pushing on in age. He must be 36 now? 35? 34. He'll be 35 in January. I do think you'll look to move, maybe move on from him in the summer and bring in a right back. There's not a whole lot they need to do. They've still got Eberichi Ezzi to come back into this team, who might be the best player at the club. Olise still has to work his way into the starting eleven. They're getting 
good contributions from AU off the bench, from Benteke. Edward's been really selfless with his play, playing in wide areas. Zaha looks re-inspired again. Looks like he wants to be there again. You know, MacArthur, Koyate, Milivojevic, these are the more experienced midfield players lending that older head, managing game state, calming others down, but also talking people through games, calling the press. Everything about what Patrick Vieira has done so far has impressed me. I thought it was a bit of a risk getting him in. The the Nice job didn't go great. It wasn't bad, but didn't go great. It didn't end well. But thus far, he has done a tremendous job. The new signings, like I say, all working out. There's so much to like. They're fun. They're fun. Crystal Palace are fun. Crystal Palace have been the football equivalent of a wake for years. And now they're fun. It's a damnedest thing. Credit to them. And long may it continue. I really want to see them. They've just invested a big big portion of money in their academy. I want to see them grow that. I want to see them become more aggressive in their recruitment of young players. Build a wall around South London. So that when the next Joe Gomez or Esri Konza comes along, they go to you and not to Charlton. Then be the club that picks up players who feel they don't have a pathway at Arsenal at Chelsea or at Tottenham so that when Noni Mudieke wants to leave Tottenham because he doesn't see a path to the first team you're the first club in line to get him when the likes of I mean look at the amount of young players that left Arsenal Serge Gnabry Ishmael Benasser Jeff Rene Adelaide bunch of others there's ones there at the minute, like Eddie and Ketia, Reese Nelson, uh, Balogun, all getting a bit frustrated with the lack of opportunities. Martinelli might be the next one that gets a little bit frustrated. If Charlie Patino doesn't find his way into the first team, he might get frustrated. Be the club standing there waiting to take them in. Same thing at Chelsea. Be the club the agent of Tino Livermento calls when his client thinks, I need to move on. I need to go. When Tariq Lamptey wants out, be the club that takes those players. Take that risk. You've got pretty wealthy owners there. It's pretty wealthy owners in that, that group. You know, obviously the, the primary owner is Steve Parrish, who's responsible for saving the club, really. Uh, but Joshua Harris, the American, he has a lot of money behind him and he's a very ambitious man. You see what he's done with the Philadelphia 76ers and how much money he's pumped in there and what he wants them to become. He, he won't be happy at all if they don't win an NBA championship in the next couple of years. So he, he wants his teams to perform. And he's willing to put money in. He's got plenty of it as well. Um, so I think we will see Palace. They, they, they won't ever be 
Arsenal or Spurs or Chelsea. But I mean, couldn't they be West Ham? That's not a massive step from where they are. Now, they'd probably need to move to a new stadium, but do we want them to leave Selhurst Park? I love Selhurst Park. One of the, my favourite things about living in England was trips to Selhurst Park because it was the closest Premier League team to me at the time. A great place to watch a game. Atmosphere is unbelievable. Fantastic fans at Palace. And now they've got a fun team to watch as well. And I'm absolutely delighted for their fans. Uh, we'll do Everton before we hit our break. Everton's season started quite well. Uh, you know, in their first six games, they won four, drew one and only had the one defeat. They beat Southampton on the opening day, haven't gone behind. They showed, you know, they showed that they weren't going to just roll over as Everton teams have in previous years and came back to win the game. Against Leeds, they went to Ellen Road, should have won the game, went ahead twice. Leeds came back and got a point with a Rafinha worldie. They went to Brighton and beat them 2-0 and were very comfortable in beating them 2-0. And this was a good Brighton team. They went behind at home to Burnley. They came back three goals in six minutes and turned the game around and ended up comfortable victors. Very poor result, very poor performance away to Aston Villa. They just got trounced on the day. Then they beat Norwich 2-0. They got a good draw at Old Trafford and, in truth, probably should have won the game. And then it all went a little bit pear-shaped. They lost to West Ham at home. That's not a bad result. West Ham are a really good team. The trouncing they took at the hands of Watford was bad, but the manner of it was worse. To concede four goals in 12 minutes is the most un-Rafa Benitez-like thing you'll ever see. They'd gone one up, then they'd gone 2-1 up, and then they just completely fell apart. They lost at Wolves, and I think the scoreline flattered them a little bit. And then they got a draw against uh, Spurs at the weekend. So it is a mixed bag. There's no doubt there. Four wins. Four defeats, three draws. But there are mitigating circumstances. Dominic Calvert-Lewin has only played three of the 11 games. Richarlison has only started six and come on as a sub and won. Luka Dina missed some games. Yerry Mina's missed most of the season. We do have to factor in these things. and the is out at the moment. We do have to take these things into account. They've had to deal with injuries, unfortunately for them, in positions where they don't have enough depth. Despite all the money they've spent over the years, Everton don't really have quality depth. Now, in part, that's because they've made some foolish sales. Adam Ola-Luckman, Nikola Vlasic, these are guys that probably be starting for them now. I uh, didn't agree with the decision to loan out Moise Keane, certainly not to bring in Solomon Rondon. But when you see how well Andros Townsend has done this season, having arrived on a free. Damari Gray at 1.7 million might be the signing of the summer thus far. He's been largely excellent. Even in a couple of those games where they were poor, he was one shining light for them. Three goals in 11 league appearances thus far. 
think he's played every game. But he's been really good, and Rafa seems to be getting the best out of him. You know, when you see some of the players leaving on a free or released in the summer, Mo Besic they paid decent money for. Balassi they paid nearly £30 million for. Josh Bowler was one of the most highly sought-after youngsters in the country when Everton bought him in 2017, and they released him on a free in the summer. Uh, Josh King, they obviously took a bit of a punt on. Surprised they didn't try and keep him. Don't really understand why they didn't. Uh, Walcott, they paid the best part of £25 million for. He left on a free. Bernard left for a nominal fee. They paid massive money in signing bonuses and wages to bring him in. It didn't work. Uh, didn't agree with the decision to sell Thierry Small. Very, very good young left back on Southampton. James Rodriguez, they somehow managed to sting Al Rayan for 7.2 million, but I think that basically just covered paying off James. I think that's what that was. Um, James was, you know, was a good idea, just not at the right time. Um, but, you know, they've spent a lot of money badly over the years, and you can look up and down their squad and see, you know, Michael Keane at 30 million. Pickford was the better part of 30 million. Um, you look in midfield and you've got Andre Gomes was big money. I mean, you know, the, the name that we probably should ignore, but Gilfie Sigurdsson was 40 million and now he's not playing football anymore. Uh, Gabaman, they spent 25 million on. He's been unfortunate with injuries, but, you know, Alex Awobi was 30 plus million. Chank Tucson was 30 million. It's a lot of money spent on bad players. A lot of money spent on bad players. That's why they've got no depth. And Rafa had no money to spend. You would hope that in time they'll get themselves sorted. They'll be able to put together a good squad. They've got a good manager now. Uh, is he still the manager he was 10 years ago? No, he's not. Rafa's never quite been the same since he left Liverpool. Even that last season at Liverpool, he wasn't quite the same. The pressure, the turmoil at Liverpool, the constant battle with the ownership just took its toll on the man. The interjob, it was doomed to failure from the start. Taking over from Mourinho, who just won a treble, including a Champions League, was just not going to work. Then he went to Chelsea after a break. He'd taken about a year off, two years off almost. And he won the Europa League. But since then, he's sort of been on the decline. Napoli did well, not great. Real Madrid, again, destined to fail. His style of football was never going to work there. He was good at Newcastle, but he wasn't the same. He'd become more of a guy to keep you up rather than a guy to go and win things. Obviously, then he went to China. It didn't go well. And now at Everton, I feel like it can go well. But I don't think he's the type who will take Everton into the top six, which is where they want to be. I think he can stabilise things. He can build things a little bit, bit for them. But I don't see him being a long-term fixture at Everton. But he is a good manager still. And they're lucky to have him, in truth. But this season so far, very much a mixed bag. Can only really judge them when they have their full team available. Because... They just don't have anyone else. Like, they've only got Calvert-Lewin up front. After that, 
you're wasting your time talking to anybody. Richarlison, Damari Gray, Townsend, these kind of guys are a good complementary players. They're not the type of guys that are going to lead you to a high Premier League uh, finish, whereas I think Calvert-Lewin can. And on the subject of Calvert-Lewin, massive, massive credit to that guy. He doesn't care what you think of him. He is going to be him. He is going to do what he wants to do. And he is going to boil as much gammon as he can. And I'm I'm here for that. Like, you could, you could hear the gammon sizzling across the UK yesterday when that Calvert-Lewin photo shoot came out. Uh, and, and I was enjoying every single bit of it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll jump into Leeds and Leicester and then wrap up with the gossip. I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. We'll jump straight in to one of the more disappointing teams in the Premier League this season, Leeds United. I had high hopes for them after a very impressive first season in the Premier League, but it has not gone particularly well this season. However, as with Everton, they have had injuries that have held them back. The injury to Bamford has been really, really difficult for them to overcome because they don't have another goal scorer in the squad. Now, admittedly, he'd only scored one in his five appearances, but they don't have anyone else that can really lead the line the way he does, and he is really important to their style of play. Now, they've been fortunate in that Rafinha has just decided to show everybody that he's one of the best players in the league, and he's been outstanding. And this is probably his last season at Leeds. I would be stunned if he's there beyond this year. He's, with respect, he's too good for Leeds. He belongs at a Champions League club. He belongs in a team challenging for the Premier League title. Or the Serie A title or the Bundesliga title or wherever, but he deserves to be in a Champions League club challenging for titles. Um, You know, Ailing's missed half the season. The issue there is not so much Ailing, it's the lack of a, another right back. Firpo hasn't settled as quickly. You look at the summer signings and they didn't quite do enough, but they did make some good buys. Like making the Jack Harrison deal permanent, really good. For 11 million, really good business. Uh, they brought in Amari Miller, hugely talented young player from Birmingham. Sean McGurk, another hugely young talented player from Wigan. Lewis Bates, very, very highly regarded young midfielder from Chelsea. Leo Hjelds, Really liked him at Celtic and I was hoping he would stay at Celtic and become part of the future there. But he made the decision to move. Uh, Christopher Clashen, young keeper, brought in from Valaranga. So they bought good young players to fortify their future. They did the same thing last year, obviously. They brought in Junior Firpo to be their permanent left back. And I like Firpo. And I think in time he will be a good player for them. They spent $25 million on Dan James, which was an overpay. Now, there's, there's add-ons on that deal as well, I think, that could bring it over $30 million. Um, Dan James is a 
is a decent player. He can be a good player at times, but he is quite rudimentary. He's quite limited in what he does. Now, he's obviously got incredible pace, and they've been after him for a while, and he does suit Bielsa's style of play when, when Leeds have their full team. I think if Leeds can get their best 11 out on the pitch, which would be Melier in goal, it's probably still ailing at right back, Firpo at left back, Robin Cock, who again, he's missed 10 games this season. He would be starting at centre-back next to Diego Loriente, who's their best defender. Liam Cooper, despite being club captain, is a championship-level player. And he does create a big issue for this team. He's just not quite good enough. But if they had Ailing and Firpo as full-backs, Lorente and Cock at centre-back with Melian in goal, then you obviously sit Calvin Phillips in front of that. And then you run a midfield four of Rafinha on the right, James on the left, and then play Harrison in a central role next to Matthias Glish. That, as a midfield four, in front of Phillips, I think could be very, very good. And then obviously you have Bamford up front. I think as an 11, that's absolutely mid-table. That's a good 11 that will win a lot of games. They'll be tough to beat. Very difficult to play against. I think you get more quality from Harrison by playing playing him in a central area. And then you have that lightning pace, that lightning outball of Dan James. While Rafinha, also a counter-attacking threat, but also a playmaking threat down the other side. I had hoped to see them add a little bit more in the summer. I thought another centre-back, you know, just given the injury issues with Cock and Lorente, would be worthwhile. I thought a new right-back would be worthwhile. Obviously, they have a budget and they have to stick to it. They can only do so much at a time. But just thought maybe a little bit more, maybe one more player. Get get that right-back in. And I, I really thought it could have made an impact for them. But, you know, they do need to find a backup for Bamford. I like Rodrigo as a player. And I think as a kind of utility attacker who can play right wing, left wing, one of the central positions, or instead of Bamford if needed, I think he can work, but he's just not quite, he's not consistent enough. And he's not quite good enough in front of goal to warrant playing him up front. Now, Joe Gellhard has gotten some minutes this year, and he's one of the big young prospects they brought in last summer, along with Cody Drama and um, uh, Somerville, young Somerville. And Sam Greenwood is another one they brought in last summer. These are, are talented players. Like Maybe they look at drama and think, he can be an answer for us at fullback. Maybe they believe that he can be an answer for them at fullback. And, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe he can. He arrived with a, a lot of people hyping him up coming out of Fulham. He can play either side. Maybe he can be an answer for them, but he's not there yet. It's tough to judge them because, like I say, they've had a lot of injuries. But, you know, you look through some of the performances. They got hammered at Old Trafford. 5-1. They looked absolutely shocking on the day. Decent result against Everton, having been outplayed for spells of the game. Did well to fight back and get the draw against Burnley. Got tonked by Liverpool. And in truth... If Harvey Elliott doesn't get his ankle broken, Liverpool probably go on and win that game 5 or 6-0. The Elliott ankle break and the Struyak red card 
really just took the the momentum out of the game. The one-one draw with Newcastle was a disappointing performance and a disappointing result. They got beaten by West Ham two-one at home. That's not a dreadful result. West Ham are really good. They beat Watford one nil. They should beat Watford, and they did. Uh, they lost one nil away to Southampton. Two teams that were fairly evenly matched on the day. Didn't think they played well that day. But they have gone a little three-game unbeaten streak, which involved a late comeback goal from Rodrigo to get the point against Wolves. They beat Norwich away with the Rafinha and Rodrigo goals, and obviously a point against Leeds at the weekend with Rafinha scoring again. So twice this season they have scored late to secure draws. Three times they've come behind from behind to secure draws. And I think that's at least promising that they are fighting back in games, but they need to turn some of these games into wins. They need to start winning a couple of games. And they're 15th at the moment, and in part that's because of how poor the teams below them have been. Uh, Villa have been obviously dreadful and sacked the manager. Watford have sacked the manager. Newcastle have sacked the manager. And Norwich have sacked the manager. The only team below them that hasn't sacked the manager is Burnley, who won't sack Dyche and are the most likely of that entire group, including Villa, to get out of it. Villa with Gerrard now is a little bit of a, you know, it's a bit of an unknown. Villa have the talent to get out of it. I think the other three will, are the three that, you know, look the favourites to go down. I don't think Leeds will go down. I don't think they'll have any real problems. I think once they start getting their players back, they will find themselves winning games, picking up points, and hopefully just being a lot more consistent. Uh, Robin Cock, they reckon, is due back early December. Junior Firpo, Jamie Shackleton, Joe Gellhart, Luke Ayling, and Bamford, they're all they're having to have hoping to have all five of them back after the international break. So we could see Leeds looking a lot stronger the next time we see them. And that would be a big boost. And then if they can get Cock back and keep him fit, they should climb the table. I'd ex- I still expect them to finish a little bit lower than last year, but still in mid-table. Um, but, you know, second season syndrome is real. And they're experiencing a bit of it now. It's on Bielsa and his staff to find ways to counteract that, to find little tweaks to their game so they're not as predictable as perhaps some team view them as. Uh, last but not least, then, Leicester City, and my favourite manager, Mr. Rogers. Um, really disappointing. Like, last season, they spent pretty much the whole year in the top four, bar the last two weeks. The season before, pretty much the whole season in the top four. Obviously, fell out of it then as well in rather spectacular fashion. Won the FA Cup last year. And I said... Before the season began, their window for top four might be closed because I thought United would be a lot better this season with the money they've invested. Now, they still needed a midfield, but you bring in Varane, that solves a big issue. Um, I, I did think Leicester's window was closed, but given how United have started, there is one spot in the top four open. Liverpool, Chelsea, City, you can just write them in and pen. They're going to be in the top four this year. But fourth is still wide open. 
And it was a real opportunity for Leicester because if they'd started the season the way they have the previous two seasons, you feel like they'd be right there in that mix right now. And they beat Wolves on the opening day 1-0, but they didn't play well. And if it wasn't for Dama Traore not being able to finish, they would have at best drawn the game and most likely lost the game. Then they played West Ham and got tonked. Absolutely walloped. It wasn't even a competitive game. West Ham hammered them. Then they played Norwich. They won the game 2-1. But Norwich had a late goal disallowed. And Norwich played really well and probably deserved a point from the game. They lost 1-0 at home to City. There's no shame in that. They lost 2-1 to Brighton. With the way Brighton are playing, there's no shame there. Then they drew 2-2 with Burnley. Having gone behind twice, they at least showed some character to come back. Brendan will have loved the character there. But Burnley were awful at the time, playing horrible, horrible football. That was disappointing. They went to Crystal Palace and went 2-0 up and then threw it away. Now, they did spank United 4-2 and were very good in, in that game. Very, very good performance. They beat Brentford 2-1. And I thought, I did think watching that game, this might be the start of them turning it around and getting back on track. And, you know, with the way that the league is going, there's still a chance if they can string together four or five wins that they can get themselves into that top four mix. Then they lose to Arsenal, and it was more the manner of how they lost. Like, they created a bunch of chances, and Ramsdale absolutely won the game for Arsenal. But the way they started, for the first 20 minutes, Arsenal just wiped the floor with them. Arsenal were all over them. And Leicester almost seemed shell-shocked by it. They played Leeds at the weekend. A really good comeback to you know concede the goal and then go and score straight away. And it was all a bit flat. Leeds had the better chances in the game, should have won the game. It's very difficult to be in any way impressed with Leicester this season. Four wins, four defeats, three draws, 12th place. Negative two goal differential, which is concerning. You know, defensively, they've been shocking this season. And you've only got Norwich, Newcastle, Watford and Villa who've conceded more goals. Leeds have conceded the same amount of goals. But Leeds are tagged as a naive team, a team that are weak defensively. Villa have Tyron Mings. Watford, they've got the worst collection of centre-backs maybe in Premier League history. Newcastle's defence is, is a car crash. And Norwich, you know, Grant Hanley tax. I get that Leicester have had injuries this season. And, and you do, again, like with the rest, you have to factor that in because you have to be fair. But they've also, like... Kagno Seonchu has played every game. He's a really good defender, but he is regressing at a drastic rate under Rodgers. Johnny Evans missing most of the season has, well, not most, yeah, most of the season. He's missed six games. That's a big, big blow for them. But, I mean, they did go and spend $15 million at the demand of the manager on Yannick Vestergaard, who currently can't get in the team because Daniel Amarty is playing centre-back. Like, why is Daniel Amarty in your team? 
you own Philippe Benkovic, who's a better centre-back than Daniel Amarty, purely on the basis that he actually is a centre-back. The early season injury to Fafana obviously was a blow. They're still waiting on James Justin to come back. And if they're going to play a back three, my assumption is James Justin will be one of that back three. But at the same time, I, I don't really... I don't really feel like that excuses how bad they've been defensively. The biggest blow has been Wilf and Didi being out because he's he's a tight, an absolute titan in midfield for them. He's a tremendous player. One of the three best holding midfielders in the league along with Rodri and Fabinho. But, you know, Thielemans has been outstanding. Vardy's been very, very good. Aside from that, Standout performers for Leicester. And the more worrying thing is they're not scoring goals at the rate that they normally do. 16 is not a bad return. But for a Brendan team, you'd expect a bit more because most of the focus with him is on the attacking side. Now, in terms of the summer signings, they're they're lucky they bought Bubakari Samari because he's been able to fill in for Ndidi. And he has been good. Daka has had some really bright moments, including uh, a, a great performance in the Europa League. Ryan Bertrand thus far hasn't been able to establish himself. He was probably just bought as a squad player. Brendan's had a long time fascination with Ryan Bertrand. So, you know, getting him was probably just more about having the chance to work with him. He knew him at Chelsea. Uh, Vestergaard's been a mess. He has been an absolute train wreck. He's, you can, the guy just can't defend. He doesn't have the pace. He's basically just a Danish Harry Maguire with, with worse PR. He's great in the air. He can really ping a pass. But he is... He is... I said this, was it yesterday? I think myself and Guy were talking before we came on. And I mentioned it on the pod that if you lined up every centre-back in the league on one touchline and had them race to the other touchline. I wondered if anyone would be slower than Maguire, than Harry Maguire. I think Yannick Vestergaard might be the one who is. I think he might be the one who is. And it's no surprise that Southampton have improved enormously at the back since he left. Sally Sue is so much better than him already, and he's 21-22. It was a bad signing. I get it was a bit of a panicked one, but it was the 13th of August. You still had a couple of weeks left in the window. And, you know, you didn't have to buy Yannick Vestergaard. There are other centre-backs out there. But it was a very Brendan move. This is the guy that bought Lovren over Font when Font was holding his hand and carrying him up and down the field. So he buys Vestergaard after Bednarak has held his hand and carried him up and down the field. He could have bought Vestig, could have got, could have bought Bednarak, could have bought anybody. Didn't have to buy Yannick Vestergaard. Could have bought someone good. Um, you would hope that Leicester will turn this around fairly quick, but they've got Chelsea next, which is obviously going to be a tough one. I still think they will finish in the top seven or eight. Um, there's a lot of distraction around Rodgers at the minute, though. Like, he was heavily linked with the Spurs job, and he kind of shot that down, but in a weird way. 
And there's been this rumbling about him going to United that he hasn't shot down. There was rumours that he had eyes on the City job, that he felt that you know he was on a short list or whatever. It does sort of feel like Brendan might be a little bit distracted or maybe coming to the end of his time at the club. This is his third full season. By the end of this season, he'll have been there, what, three years and four months. So that's probably about... Well, that, that would be the, the longest spell I think he's had at a club. Um, he did two and a half years at... Let's see. Yeah, by the end of this season, he's, he's 40 games shy of his tally at Celtic. But at Celtic, remember, he's playing deep in all the cups. He got the, well, it, it wasn't playing deep. He was playing every available game domestically, league and both cups, plus a lot of European games because Celtic start early in the qualifiers and stuff because of the crappy league they're in. Um the longest time he spent at a club was at Liverpool. Three years and four months. But that was 166 games. He managed 169 games in two years and nine months at Celtic. He'll be three years at Leicester. In February. So if he stays till late June. Which he probably won't be at, at, at Leicester as long. As he was at Liverpool. Just in terms of days. But he will get to the same amount of games managed. And maybe that's just w what it is for him. You know 166 at Liverpool. 169 at Celtic. Maybe he then. You know Liverpool wanted to move him on. But he wanted to move on from Celtic. And maybe he's getting to the point where he wants to move on. He's incredibly ambitious. He does have his eyes on big prizes. And by big prizes, I mean big jobs. Places to, to spread the Bible, the, the gospel according to Brendan. Um, and I could see him getting the United job. I could. And I think he'd be a good appointment. He'd certainly be a much better appointment than Ollie. You know, I think he'd be a better appointment than Moyes was, even though I think Moyes is probably a slightly better manager than Brendan. I think Brendan is a more ambitious manager and a bigger thinker than Moyes. Moyes still has that underdog mentality. Brendan goes into every game thinking he's got the best team and he's the best manager. Moyes never shook the Everton when he went to Old Trafford. I think he'd be a better appointment than Louis van Gaal was at the time because van Gaal was very much past his best. Mourinho was damaged goods. He would be the best post-Ferguson appointment. I don't think he's good enough defensively to win you a Premier League. And I don't think he's good enough in Europe for you to have real success there. But he does really, really good work developing players. So if you were, you know, Mason Greenwood, a Jaden Sancho, uh, Marcus Rashford, those type of guys, you'd be in luck. Um, I think he'd probably play back three at United. So he'd need, he'd need a wing back. I'm not sure what he'd do with with the attack. Like Bruno would have to play. So one of the attackers, probably Sancho, would have to sit out. But I do think he'd do great work at United. 
But I don't think he'd win them the league. He'd win them some cups, and I think you know that would be be good. And I think he'd keep them in the top four, and, and that would be good. But I mean, that's not what they want. But you know, they have to accept their the reality is there's a lot of turnover needed, and we're going to go through United tomorrow. But I do just wonder with Brandon is is all the talk of these bigger jobs. He's been linked since joining Leicester. He's been linked with Spurs twice. Arsenal. There was somewhere else he was linked. He was linked to the Chelsea job. He was linked to the Chelsea job when Frank got sacked. So that one. He won't ever get linked with the Liverpool job again. Um, not by anybody with any, you know, real input or, or you know, wisdom. Um, but United, I mean... Look, at the, at the end of the day, the United job is the biggest job in the country. They're the biggest club in the country, regardless of their current situation. They're the biggest club in the country. That is the biggest job. It is a very appealing job. And I do think Brendan would want that job. Now, I think he would prefer the City job because better squad, more money, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no shortage of money at Old Trafford. And it is the more high-profile job. So I do think he would take that one. I wonder if maybe he's a little bit distracted by by all of the talk. You know, he he publicly said he wasn't going to go to different clubs along the way: Chelsea, Spurs, Arsenal, Spurs again. He's you know he's done a good job with that, but it's different if it's United, and I think it's different if it was City. I think he knows how the background works at Chelsea and knows that. It can be damaging to a manager's career if things don't go well. I think he realised that both Arsenal and, and Spurs were in a certain degree of turmoil and didn't have the, the bigger budgets. Whereas at United, even with the bit of turmoil, it's a huge budget. You know, you're basically going in there to be Batman. You have no superpowers, but you have a massive budget. You've got loads of money behind you so you can get fancy things. Um, And... Judging by what I've seen from Leicester this year, he just doesn't seem as engaged. Even in his press conferences, he doesn't seem as as locked in as he normally does. So maybe it is just getting to the point where he's starting to look at his next move, starting to look at where he could go. And maybe that's distracting from his work with Leicester. But they've been disappointing so far. You would still back them to to turn it around. There's an awful lot of talent there. They will get players back. I believe Justin is back in training, so he should be back soon enough. Fafana, I don't think they're looking up till like late January, early February. But getting Ndidi back, getting Justin back, those will be massive, massive helps. Lots of attacking talent there. Barnes starting to find form. Vardy playing well. Madison, week by week, looking a bit more like himself. Thielemans having a good season. Daka settling in. Ian Acho proving that last season wasn't a fluke. You'd want more goals from him. He's playing well as a facilitator, but not a goal scorer. So you do want more goals from him. I think you might want to just a little let... As a good chef always said, there's such a thing as too much salt in a dish. There's such a thing as too much Aosi Perez, Brendan. Just a little less Aosi Perez, and I think things might start to improve for you. Um, right, we'll wrap up with the gossip then. Everton and Newcastle are interested in signing 
Aaron Ramsey. Yeah, it, it reeks of Newcastle. Reeks of it. Money to spend. No clue what you're doing yet. Imanello not in the door. Um, reeks of Newcastle. Aaron Ramsey, uh, Eden Hazard and Phil Coutinho. There's the, the dream window for a new football owner with more money than sense. Manchester United are prepared to sell Paul Pogba in the January transfer window, and they should. Aston Villa will need to pay Rangers two million if they decide to appoint Stephen Gerrard. I believe it is three million. Uh, Newcastle's new manager Eddie Howe is targeting Kieran Trippier in January. And that's a lazy link. That's a lazy link. They work together at, at Burnley. I think that's a lazy link. Uh, Barcelona players are disgruntled with Phil Coutinho, accusing him of downing tools amid rumours of a potential move to Newcastle. It's from the star. I don't imagine the star have a Barcelona correspondent. So we'll just take that with a pinch of salt. Uh, Brendan Rodgers is the favourite to replace Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United. So says Eurosports Dean Jones. Um, we'll move on. Uh, Manchester United are hoping to, be, to beat Chelsea to sign Jules Koundé. This is garbage. It's nonsense. United don't need another defender. What United need is a midfielder. I invite you, when you have a little bit of time, to get a pen and a piece of paper. Draw out a little football pitch. And then go and look at the players Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has signed. And assign them to their primary roles on the football pitch. And note what is missing from the puzzle. Liverpool are interested in Jared Bowen, but will not make a move in January. Good. Uh, Newcastle could last Usman Dem- could land Usman Dembele in a free transfer. I mean, they could, they won't, but they could. Barcelona are preparing to offer Dembele a new contract. They've been, <laughs> they've been offering him a new contract for two years now. Uh, Genoa boss one, uh, Andrei Shevchenko wants to sign Christian Pulisic. Um, the last time I checked. Genoa didn't have a whole heap of money and weren't exactly the type of club that could go and sign a player who last time he moved, it was for 60 million. So I'm going to say no to that one. Uh, Barcelona should re-sign Lionel Messi in 2023 when his PSG contract ends, says former club president Victor Font. I'm not against that. I mean, he'd be 36. So how much use he'd be, I don't know. But, I mean, maybe. Victor Font is an interesting one. He he failed uh, to win the presidency uh, at Barca, but, you know, he has things to say on everything. He's got great visions for everything except a vision for how to actually run the football club. West Ham would reject bids as high as 100 million for Declan Rice. I guarantee you they wouldn't. If if United or City threw a hundred million on the table tomorrow, Declan Rice is on his way to Manchester. Um, Arsenal's attempts to line Dusan Vla- Dusan Vlahovic have hit a stumbling talk as a result of his agent refusing to hold talks with them. He's aiming for Champions League clubs, and with respect to Arsenal, they're not anywhere close to being in the Champions League right now. Newcastle have entered talks with the representatives of Nicholas Sewell. 
Um, great in the air, good pass to the ball. Fine if the game is in front of him. He would also lose that race across the pitch to Maguire. Uh, since the knee injury, he has been painfully slow. Borussia Mönchengladbach are considering a January bid for Eddie and Ketty. If I was him, I, I would jump at the chance to go to Germany. I think it's the perfect place for him to go and develop. Giovanni Simeone, the son of Diego, is top of West Ham's shortlist. Really? That's a That would be a bizarre one. I think the Express are making things up. And finally, uh, former Swansea City and USA boss Bob Bradley is set to become the manager of Major League Soccer side Toronto FC. My former local club. Um, well, Bob Bradley was a great manager for many years. Uh, stank the place out when he came to Europe. Um, has done pretty well at LAFC, considering they were a, a new franchise when he took over. What year did they launch? 2014. So they only founded three years before he took over, and they only came into the league in 2018. So he is, he's been the only manager there. Uh, so he's done pretty well for a new club. But uh, I think Toronto could, could aim higher. I think they could do better. But look, if that's who it is, that's who it is. Um, right, we will leave it at that, folks. We've gone, well, it's not, I say we've gone long. We haven't really, because we go long every day. Every single day this thing ends up in an hour 20, an hour 30. So it's no surprise that this one is again at around the hour and a half mark. Uh, but I do hope you're enjoying this uh, season so far review. Tomorrow, obviously, we will continue as we work our way through the Premier League. Uh, tomorrow's episode takes in the bigger clubs. You know, you've got Liverpool, you've got Manchester City, you've got Manchester United. Uh, you'll also have Newcastle and Norwich, uh, the relegation fodder. So that's tomorrow. Um, no questions this week, but there, I do have a couple of questions that I was sent already that I will answer tomorrow. Uh, and that's about it. That's me for today. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.